Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Lucas Dolt, a writer and director whose first feature Girl won both the Camera Door and the Queer Palm at Cannes in 2018. His follow-up is Close, a coming-of-age drama about two boys whose friendship begins to fray when they start a new school. And if that title sounds familiar, that's because Close was just nominated for the Academy Award for Best International Feature last week, and rightly so, because it's absolutely devastating. It's playing in U.S. theaters right now and opens across Canada this Friday, February 3rd. In Toronto, we've got it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, and you should check it out. Lucas and I recorded this episode back in December, just after Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman, 23 Key to Commerce, 1080 Brussels, was named the greatest film of all time in the Sight and Sound poll. And even though Wayne Wang chose the movie for episode 306 back in 2020, Lucas, who is a very proud Belgian, asked if he could take his own run at it in honor of the honor. And given the circumstances, as well as how many different ways there are to interpret Ackerman's unequaled experiment in Stasis Intention, studying the daily routine of an apparently ordinary woman embodied by Delphine Seyrig, well, how could I refuse? This is someone else's movie. Well, first of all, I'm a fellow Belgian, and we Belgians are all very proud. <laughs> but, understandably. Um, understandably. Um, well, I think that I have to go back a little in order to answer that question profoundly. So I was someone who grew up like I, I think so many people um, with a cinema of spectacle, a cinema of entertainment. I mean, in the Flemish-speaking part of our country, we also don't do dubbing. So we get we get American cinema uh, in English language. We I grew up with films with aliens and monsters and sinking boats. And I think that when I was young, it was a way for me, that cinema was a way for me to escape reality. Uh, I think a reality in which I felt that the body I was born in came with a set of rules, roles and expectations in this society that I couldn't really live up to. Um, I felt like I was a young man often considered too feminine or too manuristic or just, I, I, I felt shame from an early age. Um, and I think my, in my young life, in reality, I really tried to become more an other. I tried to become more like, uh, the people around me. And so that reality was quite conflictuous. And for me, cinema was an ideal way of escaping, uh, an ideal way of being transported into another universe, one that is desirably as far as it could from my own reality. And it felt really safe to be in a cinema at that moment in time. And then I remember... I have this distinct memory of going to film school. I was 18 and I entered film school and I thought, this is what I'm going to do with my life. You know, I'm going to uh, write scripts about uh, zombies and I'm going to make that type of cinema that offered me that escape. And my teacher made us watch uh, Jean Dilma, 
which I, I mean, I, of course, it, it comes without saying that that was an enormous clash with anything that I had seen before. I had never seen anything like that in cinema because I had seen these images a lot in reality. Uh, I remember going um, after school to my grandmother's house, sitting on her floor, watching her make meatloaf or uh, fries or tiramisu and just observing her and my mom as well, for that matter. And that had always been a given in my reality. I had never looked further. I had never looked deeper. And it feels like when I saw Chantal Ackermann's Jean Dilman, that it made me look different at things that I actually had seen my whole life. And I find that to be a very rare, very incredible power of, of a cinematic tool is if all of a sudden you start to look at those closest to you in a different way. But it also made me realize <clears throat> that the camera could be right there could be right where I was next to me on the floor. I didn't have to invent it on battlefields or or in space. I I, I could actually place the camera just from where I was sitting. Mm -hmm. And maybe it made me realize that, and it confronted me with the idea of filming my perspective on the world and like Chantal Ackermann did, uncovering by doing that the invisible walls and systems that society have created for us. And I'm still trying to get my head around seeing this at 18. I was I was older when I first encountered it, um, and I I think I know who I was when I first started film school, and I don't think I would have sat still for it. I think I would have been too naive myself to disappear into it. What was the response like in the room? Was everyone having that level of discovery or, or were people engaging with it or not engaging with it? You know, I, I, I have to tell you that in my high school, I went to a very Catholic high school where we all wore a, a green costume. Mm -hmm. We all did the same things. We walked in line. We listened to what was told to us. And so I feel like when I was an adult, a teenager, I constantly conformed to the notions of a group. And so when I entered film school, I, I mean, with all these different personalities and actually people who had a personality, because I felt like I was someone who didn't have a personality, to be honest, I had, well, I felt like just I had conformed constantly to what others wanted and thought was valuable. I realized that in order for me to really survive that group of very different, distinct personalities, mm -hmm. I had to confront myself with uh, other perspectives. I had to open up. I had to see and experience different things. So I just to say that I think I was very recipient to the notion of seeing different things. Mm -hmm. Um, I also went, I have to laugh because 
we had like uh, every week we would watch another film and I, I feel like our professors chose deliberately the films that made us provoke like different emotions. I, I remember also watching, for example, in that same category, L'Irréversible by Gaspard Noé. Wow. And have like people, sh I, I mean, that was explosive. The, the type of reactions that that generated was explosive. Like you had uh, students who walked out, who were angry. With, um, and I feel like I was just someone who was just, sitting and taking it all in. And I feel like that with Jan Dilman. I was like, she has been an inspiration to so many brilliant directors like Todd Haynes, Gus Van Sant, uh, all these people. So there must be something. There must be something. And the average shot length of the films I had seen when I was young was six seconds. All of a sudden it was like minutes mm -hmm. and minutes. And I feel like I was just like like there was this someone created an 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 opening to another world and and eventually i think for me to my actual uh, to the actual i think authentic voice that i try to have right now as a filmmaker certainly your work shares the same i was going to say refusal to judge but it's not that it's a sympathy it's an empathy um we are not we are not supposed to i've never understood well that's not fair i've i have never been able to fully articulate what it is that ackerman does i i don't know what it is it's a magic trick it's alchemy it's um it's this absolute flatness of frame that pulls us in without moving the camera without moving towards Selrig. you're just you are just compelled to lean forward to to see more of the same thing that you see over and over again. And what you do in close is very, very similar because it's all about these unstated emotions and and the the, the ambiguity of of a non-sexual friendship where two kids are just physically close, physically intimate in a way that isn't intimate. They're just comfortable with one another. And it's the sort of thing that goes away as soon as you have sexual development and understand um, in, a, in a very coarse way what your body is for and and how things can be deemed inappropriate or appropriate based on your development or where you are. And, and all of those things are flying around in your film, but they're never articulated. But even when people most need to have them articulated, no one offers this. And, yeah. and I see Ackerman there. I see like Jean Dielman's absolute refusal to provide any further context other than the facts of the title. You know, this is who she is. This is where she lives. It's post-war, but it's a long way post-war, but she's old enough to remember there are all these other things echoing through the film that are never spoken. And it just keeps pulling you closer. So by the end of it, and, and you know, the thing is the length of the, the second Godfather movie, which is how I related to it at the time. <laughs> um, but by the end of it, you want to have your face against the screen to see what you missed in all those other yeah. shots and there's nothing it's all internal yeah well i think it's 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 incredible what she does because i think she makes a sort of choreography of the daily mm -hmm. which is which is incredibly admirable i think to to dare to do that and i think what what i feel incredibly resonant with is she by by using by placing the camera in that apartment, by placing the camera 
in the space that is assigned to this character, to this woman, mm-hmm. uh, the role that is assigned to her. I feel like she says so much about the invisible walls of our society without having to necessarily go out of that apartment or show that society in a very confrontational, uh, concrete way. Just by showing that space that we know is given to that character and that role that we know is constructed for her. And so when I when I think of our characters in, in Girl or in Close, I feel like, I mean, maybe in a different formal way, but I feel like we try to do that. I feel like we try uh, to choose characters uh, that don't necessarily find their space, get a role all because of the body that they're born in, are given a set of rules and expectations, and that we don't necessarily need to explain them, show them, but just because of choosing these characters in this society, in this space, we know what roles and what norms are assigned to them. Yeah. And I feel like that is something that I deeply admire with with Chantal's work and, and that we I know when we write, we really think of the radicalness with which she tried to do that. Um, I also really believe that she's a choreographer. Uh, she's a choreographer that sees um, the, the, the incredibly uh, interesting elements very close to her. And she tries to build up and change that choreography and mise-en-scene throughout the film. Um, and it's somewhat, I mean, I wanted to become a dancer before I wanted to be a filmmaker. I eventually I stopped the the dream of of dance and I continued the dream of film. But so often when I attack a script, when I first start to write it, I think of it as a, as a choreography. I think of it as movement, bodies, silences, but ways of looking. Mm-hmm. So I don't follow fall back on the spoken word. I really fall back on the body and the gestures. Um and I think that, well, I think that the universe of Chantal Ackerman also so often falls back on um, movement, gestures, um, rather than on, than on what is said. Um, and, um, yeah, so I feel, like, I feel like we come at it from, from the same direction somehow. I mean, certainly... Ackerman makes, I mean, dropping a fork, the most cataclysmic thing in, in someone's life. And it's, you know, on repeat viewings, you're sort of waiting for it to, to see if there's a clue, if there's a hint, if there's, if there's any kind of indication that it's going on, but it's all so contained. I mean, this is a, this is a woman who exists on muscle memory. I think at this point in the film where she's just, she's not empty. She's clearly feeling everything in the world that there is to feel, but she's doing it through these same gestures, through these practice motions, um, and then finally just starts to destabilize and come apart. When I think about the activity in Close, as soon as you said movement, I thought about the way that characters move towards homes and away from homes over and over again. They're going to the same places and the same spaces. 
yeah. um, alone with themselves and the camera follows along. And again, I don't want to talk about the, the plot of the film and give anything away, but the, the way that absences are reflected and the way that, you know, going to see someone's dog is just the most heartbreaking thing you can do. And it's still a comfort, but it's also a reminder that the person who had the dog is no longer there. It's, um, it's the same sort of language, right? You're not communicating through exposition or through even through visual exposition. It's, it's, it's mise-en-scene. It's what's not there. Yeah, totally. And I think it's about showing what changes, showing what happens in these lives of these, these characters rather than saying it out loud. I mm -hmm. feel like um, there is this point, uh, like in, in, in uh, Jean Dumont, maybe in Close It comes a little bit earlier, where um, there's something that changes in the life of this young boy. Like all of a sudden he feels like the closeness that he shares with his best friend at this intimacy is, is interpreted by society, by the world around him as something that cannot be anything else but linked to sexuality. Right. And so it makes him... It, 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 it changes something that has an impact on everything that he does afterwards. Um, I feel like that is a sort of mirror with, with Jean Dillman is that when, uh, when that starts to destabilize, we feel how she is impacted and how all of a sudden things can no longer be the same. Uh, she can no longer continue the way that she was acting. Uh, and that is very, in, I mean, I think in Jean Dillman, it's very, it's in the, those very small gestures. It's mm -hmm. incredibly precise and it's incredibly, uh, it's the, the tension and the buildup by just, you know, the, the, the little elements that happen in those film is incredible because like you say, it makes you pay even closer attention. It's like, because it's so meticulously minimal you need to focus incredibly well and, and you start to become a detective of the image. Um, I think that um, in close, I mean, I, I, I would say that the movements are maybe a bit bigger, maybe a bit more expressive uh, emotionally. Um, but I do consider this character's world to to change and he 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 pulls away and he acts differently and he he starts to become a performer a little bit in, in the case of close and uh we try to show that as much as we can with uh what his actions are and 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 by really I try when I, when we write, I, we try to say, okay, what do we see that the character does that makes us feel something? Not what does he say that makes us feel something, but what does he do? What changes in his behavior? Um, and I feel like um, that is, of course, like I said again, the the what what I guess choreographers do when they write dance spectacles. They they think about how can I convey feeling, how can I convey emotion by using the bodies of these dancers. Um and uh and it's something that I think we try to do as well. Hey, it's Norm, interrupting my own show to bring you up to speed on Shiny Things, my twice-weekly newsletter about physical media, culture, and the odd streaming project. 
Last week, I wrote about the Oscar nominations and unpacked Arrow Video's comprehensive Lucas Moodyson box set. And there's plenty more to come. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, I'll probably die. So I'm not going to let that happen. Come check it out. One thing you don't do, though, that Ackerman does in, in Jean Dillman is stasis. Is I mean, there's the stasis of what happens in the film. There's the, the thing that people are trapped with, but they keep moving forward. Uh, I remember the original warning that I got when I was about to see it for the first time is that this film is boring. Like someone had said, this film is boring and it has to be. And I think it must have been John Harkness. Uh, a friend of mine who was was another was a film critic and who just said like you you will be restless you you like you're gonna sit and wonder why you're there and yeah. you can't you could not tell a general audience that which I think is one of the reasons that the sight and sound decision has been received so poorly by people who aren't film critics I mean we're we're at a place right now where any deviation from a conventional narrative any deviation from you know, an A story with a couple of small accent pieces in a genre that everyone recognizes is immediately rejected as being weird or different or just at a point where everything is splintering and, and theoretically people should be able to see and discover any kind of film at any point in time because we have access, unparalleled access to the history of cinema and to the wealth of films that are out there. Um, the Sight and Sound list comes out and then a week later, everybody's 10 best lists come out and all I'm seeing on Twitter are people making fun of idiots who say, where's Top Gun? Um, you know, Top Gun Maverick was the biggest hit of the year. Therefore it's the best film of the year. Therefore it should be on your New York times list. And I just, I think of Ackerman making this movie and releasing it in 1975, just as Jaws is coming out and changing the landscape of the blockbuster. And those are the movies I grew up on. Um, yeah. And, and I assume yourself as well. These are the films that are in the popular culture. They're the things you see first. And no one saw, no one sees John Dillman first. Um, you come to it at some point when someone else thinks you're ready, uh, which which I think is the best way to, to present Ackerman to the world. I, I think about the way Joanna Hogg has a teacup in the souvenir films that becomes yeah. the fork in the second movie. But you have to get to the second movie to get to the teacup having any meaning. And it's exquisite, this language that no one else speaks that comes from Ackerman. I, I'm just, uh, you know, just, I'm delighted that it, I think I voted for News From Home in the poll, so I feel guilty that I didn't vote for Jean Dielman. It's been so long that I don't remember. Yeah. And or Le, I would say I would also, I mean, I haven't voted, but Le Rendez-vous d'Anna is one that I, uh, that I think is as extraordinary as Jean Dillman. And I think, you know, there are those, I mean, I'm always, I've always been that person who I, I feel like I, I, I'm really, I can go always. Like I can enjoy Joss profoundly and I can enjoy, enjoy Jean Dillman profoundly for different ways. I feel sure. like there are, there are films that make you see cinema and make you see spectacle. And then there's films for me, there's pieces of art, they're avant-garde, but they make you look different at life. And they make, they, they actually give you more than a cinematic experience. They uncover things that you maybe weren't even aware of 
uh, were there in the life around you. Mm -hmm. um, I feel like I really resonate with the idea of what you say is like, she made Jean Dillman and Jean Dillman has to be boring because she clearly wants to say something of the condition of the role that was given to a woman uh, and is maybe still in places given to a woman. The space that is uh, narrow, the window that is small, the, the, the tasks that are given and, and those that she is deprived of. Mm -hmm. And I feel like form and, and thematics in that film come together in such a sublime, uh, necessary, important way. That film could have never worked if it wouldn't have had that concrete form. Um, and in that sense, she's a visionary. I mean, she's a visionary because if you would pitch that film to a producer, like everyone who knows in the film, uh, who, who works in the film world knows that pitching Jaws or pitching Jean Dillman, yeah, like... I know which film producers are going to give money to and which one will be very difficult. So, I mean, um, I always try to think, and, and, and for us, like in this case of, of the friendship and the boys, I think we, that's also something that we try to look for, is like where does form tell us something about the thematics that we want to talk about? Um, and I think... For example, putting this character in clothes, literally in an ice hockey costume, so literally in an armor mm. for like 60% of the film, like something through which nothing enters and nothing exits, is really something, is like an image that tells us so much for me about the type of masculinity that um, that shuts off, that uh, that. Um, doesn't that represses emotion that doesn't want people to see or enter or feel what they go through. Um, and just like that, for me, the dramaturgy of clothes, which is really a film out of two parts, a part of fragility and a part of brutality that slowly corrupts that first part and literally cuts the film in half, like makes the film start over for me is the ideal form to talk about the violence that we as a society do when we when we rip two boys who cling together apart. Um, and I've always thought like that, in the sense that I've always tried to make ways, uh, make films in a dramaturgy that I feel only by the dramaturgy already tells me something about what I want to speak of. And, and I feel that is something that I got from Chantal Ackerman. Um, uh, she did that with 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 Chandil Mom for me. It's so odd too, as as you were talking about the ice hockey sequences. I realized um, Kevin Funk, a, a West Coast Canadian director, made a film called Hello Destroyer, which is about uh, a kid in junior league hockey who is being crushed by the expectations of masculinity and sportsmanship. He's just being ground, ground, ground down, and Kevin did the podcast a few years ago when Hello Destroyer was coming out, and he picked Safe. Todd Haynes' film. So there's definitely a continuum here between Ackerman and ice hockey, and I'm not totally sure I understand it, but I want to investigate it further. This would be this would be a great essay, I feel. Chantal <laughs> Ackerman and ice hockey, the link we never put. But this is, um, I feel like, with, 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 with what you just say, that image of, uh, and that expectation of, uh, that arena of sports and of course that virility that mm. we so often um, link 
directly with masculinity. Um, it is, in a sense, about the pressures of a stereotype. It is about the construction of something that has been constructed for us by this patriarchal heteronormative society. And so there I do feel like there is this concrete link with her because that is what she, she has talked about. Uh, maybe in a different way by choosing a woman. Uh, but I would say that these ice hockey boys, ice hockey men are part of that same world, are part of that same system and in many ways also trapped by it. Yeah, they would recognize each other, I think, if they saw, if they had the chance to meet. I think so. And it's interesting, too, that the, the defining act of Jeanne Dielman is escape through someone else that she, she has to, she has to end. Well, I suppose we can discuss spoilers for a 50 year old film, but also for, you know, for a film where only one thing happens. Um, but she has to end someone else to break her own cycle. And close isn't about that. And hello destroyer isn't about that, but the cycles are broken externally in your film. Yeah. And it's because I think that, the characters of Close are simply too young to understand they're even in a cycle. I mean, Jeanne Dielman is about someone who realizes she is and stops it. And it stopped for him in Close in a way that is truly shocking and awful for the audience and then re reverberates through the entire film. Yeah. And I've, I've, I find it incredibly admirative because often when you make a film, uh, readings of a film can be so literal or sometimes so concrete sure. sometimes and it's always a bit awkward when it becomes so concrete but what she does there is she 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 shows the character who wants to break free from all these well men that have used her that have um, created uh, that 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 shell for her that empty shell um, and I feel like that that act of breaking free that is that is violent, that is radical, I feel like it is a, a, one of the most pure poetic moments in, in cinema uh, that, that has come out of Belgium. And, I, and I, I feel like the ending of Girl, for example, is one where I feel we really referred uh, to, to Chantal Ackermann, Jean Dillman, because you have this character who, who by acting so violently confronts us with the fact that she cannot go on any more, any longer than that. This deep desire to break out of that space, that assigned space. Um, and I feel like um, for me, when we wrote the ending of Girl, when we wrote like um, how Girl should end, we really thought of mirroring uh, that violence of of the ending of uh, Jean Dillman. Yeah, self-directed as opposed to self-directed because I feel because we felt like um, this young character who constantly gets pushed in that direction, who actually is looked upon by this world not as what she feels like. Uh, I mean, there is. Therefore, it, there is this. We often get confronted with the violence done by others, but a lot of us fight invisible wars because of um, the impact of others on who on who telling us who we are. Um, and I feel like talking about violence that turns inwards um, 
is something that is incredibly taboo, but also something that has really seemed very necessary for me. Yeah, I can see that. And in close, the violence is, I mean, it's very different. It's its childish violence, I think, is the best way I can describe it. Uh, and intentionally so, because I want to believe the film is is paving the way towards something better, that there's something on the other side of this for the characters that that make it to the end of the film. And I I choose to embrace that as hopeful because I kind of need to at this point in time, but also because it feels like that's where the empathy can go, that that watching the film will help someone else get through this or or an audience can have a collective moment. I'm really curious to see it with a crowd and, and see how it plays. But it feels deliberate in a way that that I think does connect me to, to Jean Dielman, which is a hopeless movie, um, but not entirely, right? Because even if you destroy your own life to end misery, you're still, invent you're, she's creating something new for herself, whatever happens next, it's going to be different. It's probably going to be awful, but but there is the possibility or the, the, the guarantee of change. Yeah, and maybe even if it's not concrete in the film, it gener it sparks that with the audience that watches it. I don't, mm. I feel like sometimes a piece that is hopeless can give us hope because we are confronted with um, something that we hadn't considered or maybe hadn't seen so clearly, so purely, so deconstructed as when it was shown to us in a cinema on a screen. When we go through reality, we look at things as the real things that they are. I always looked at my grandma as the one who made food because she loved that. My mom who did the ironing because she because that's what she did. I never looked at them, at these women in my life, um, as ones who were assigned this role, this space. And I feel like there is something to take away from a piece, even if it... It doesn't have, I feel like we're always looking and I think there's also beauty in that, but for the hopefulness. But I do feel that hopefulness doesn't only come from a, from, from happy endings. I, I feel like happy endings are, are, but maybe that's going to be funny if I say that, but are a little bit overrated in the sense that we, I, I understand that we look for this optimisticness and hopefulness as a society. I do too. But for me, cinema is also a place of confrontation, confrontation with systems. The fact that we murder as a society, the beautiful friendships between boys is because we have done that for years and years and years. We have torn them apart. We have told them from a young age that emotional connection is not necessarily valued as much as their independence as being hardened, as being competitive. And that's something that has been constructed in the language and vocabulary for us. And I feel like being confronted with that on a cinema screen actually gives us an incredible gift because it tells us to do better. It tells us to listen to these boys who talk with such much, so much love about one another. And maybe if, maybe it's only by making radical statements like Jean Dielmans and then if I'm and I don't want to sound arrogant but if I can consider close a radical statement then it is to to generate that 
that that that that that reaction uh whether it makes you angry or frustrated and i think that anger and frustration are actually really good feelings because it makes you re-question why that sparks that that profound feeling inside of you yeah i mean we're at a place now where empathy is radical so might as well be radical and and i i feel like we live in a world that constantly tries to point out our differences um, and those can go from uh, uh, go from a very high political s- scale to people who want to define what this film exactly is. Is it a queer film or not? People want to point, and not that I'm avoiding that question, but people always want to point out what is like concrete, what is different. And I feel like in that type of um uh, mindset, it feels incredibly important to try to constantly find connection and find what it is actually that is that is shared. And I feel we share so many things. We share so many uh, beautiful moments. We share happiness, but we also share so many wounds. And that for me has been the big reward with, with Close is that people have talk to me about how this film connected to their to something that they had left behind they had continued life stopped thinking about it and then all of a sudden it resurfaced and they had to confront it um and i feel yeah i feel that that is really i'm very happy with that my thanks to lucas don't whose oscar-nominated drama close is in american theaters now and reaches canada this friday february 3rd in Toronto, you can catch it at the Tiff Bell Lightbox. Thanks also to Melanie Mingatu. She knows what she did. You can find Lucas on Twitter at LucasDont, though he hasn't used the account in years. And you can find Jean Dielman on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection, streaming on the Criterion Channel, and on HBO Max in the US. It's also available to rent or buy on various VOD platforms. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com slash semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of someone else's movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week.